when the Buddha left home when he was 29 years old, he was in search of an answer to a problem. He felt the problem of our human condition. He framed it in terms of suffering, that he saw that there was a great deal of this suffering in the world and wanted to understand it, wanted to understand if it was possible to be free from this suffering. And in his exploration over the next six years, he came to a very deep understanding. The night of his awakening, he found that it is possible to become free of this suffering. But he also saw that the understanding that he had come to was very subtle. And it was hard to see, hard to penetrate this understanding. And yet out of compassion for human beings, he decided to go ahead and teach. Because when he looked out at the world, after having this recognition, having this realization about suffering and happiness, he saw that people were engaging in activities, trying to be happy, that, that, that most of our activities are kind of trying to make us happy and free from suffering. And he said, and yet, they were doing the very things that led them into suffering over and over again. And so out of compassion, he began to teach what he had understood. And the the basic framework for his teaching, the Four Noble Truths, and it is framed in terms of this problem, essentially, that, that the first noble truth is, yes, there is suffering. The acknowledgement, yes, there is suffering. The second noble truth being that uh, the understanding that there is a cause for this suffering, and that cause is within our own minds. That, that, that suffering isn't coming at us from the outside world, that the suffering that Um, we experience is a result of a process in our own minds and it is possible because it is created in our own minds it's possible to be free of it and that the path that there is a path that we can follow that will lead us to this freedom from suffering so this path the eightfold path is part of what I'd like to explore tonight But I'd like to explore it in the context of how does it lead us to the ending of suffering? What is, what does that mean and how how is that possible? So the Eightfold Path is really what we could call um, the practical side of the Buddhist teachings in a way. It, It is a set of practices of things that we engage with, act on, to uh, realize and understand for ourselves what the Buddha understood when he became awakened. And following this path is said to lead us to the ending of suffering. So I'd like to start with a brief overview of the Eightfold Path. 
and then talk a little bit about how this path connects to freedom from suffering, liberation. How does this path lead us to liberation, to awakening? So the path that the Buddha described, the Eightfold Path, has eight components to it, as you would expect. And it's divided into what we might call three aspects, three different um, groups. There's the, um, the group of wisdom, which contains the two factors of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding and wise intention. The second aspect of the Eightfold Path is what we could call the ethical section of the Eightfold Path. And it can, comprises three components, three, three parts. Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And the third section of the Eightfold Path is um, what we could call mental cultivation, mental development. And it is comprised of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So these first two, the beginning of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding and wise intention, the wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Path. Basically this is acknowledging that there's a radical shift of perspective that we need to come to the deep understanding that the Buddha discovered for himself. So the understanding uh, uh, is around suffering, around this dukkha that we've been talking about, how it's caused, and how we can be free of it, and what, what it is actually, what is this dukkha? And we've talked about dukkha quite a bit during the week, so I'm not going to go over that too much more. But what I will say is that this wise understanding is essentially framed in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which is kind of interesting actually. You know, wise understanding is the first, pa- the first part of the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path is the last aspect of the Four Noble Truths, and the first aspect of the Eightfold Path is the Four Noble Truths. It's kind of got a cyclic nature to it, and I'll come back to that. So, the, initially, this wise understanding is a um, it's kind of an intellectual understanding, an intellectual exploration. We hear about the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. We hear a little bit about this dukkha, uh, how it's caused, and we've talked about the wanting that uh, causes the wanting things to be other than they are as the source of this dissatisfaction in our lives. So that it begins, this understanding, wise understanding, begins with a kind of hearing about the teachings, hearing this new perspective on what dukkha is. It's not out there. There's something going on in here. When, we're, when we are suffering, there's something going on in our minds. And so this is a radical shift of perspective. Not something that most of us would have come up with on our own. So the Buddha is offering this as a teaching for us. So we begin with wise understanding as a teaching. And this teaching begins to inform, perhaps, if we resonate with the teachings, and 
those of you who are here, I think there's some connection with this teaching. And so there's, there begins to be having a little bit of a sense of maybe there's something possible here. I mean, for me, when I first met these teachings, I was in a state of such despair. It's kind of like my sense was, does anybody know some way out of this despair? And that's said to be kind of the beginning of the search. And um, the question that the Buddha proposes is that when there is suffering, the question comes, does someone know a way or two out of this suffering? And the Buddha is proposing, I have found a way. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a leap of faith for us to take these teachings in and to... Uh, kind of had the sense of confidence that yes this did work for the Buddha maybe it will work for me so initially we we kind of go on borrowed trust, borrowed faith borrowed confidence so we begin with a kind of an intellectual perhaps reflective acceptance or at least curiosity and interest and willingness to explore these teachings and this perhaps begins to motivate us to engage with the practices. So this motivation uh, touches into the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention. And so from the wise intention to engage in these practices, we begin to kind of reorient our lives. We see that this suffering is not our own problem alone. It is widespread. Everybody has the same struggles. And we, we start to have a sense of a connection with other beings and a wish to not add difficulty to their lives. And so this begins the, the movement into the next aspect of the Eightfold Path, which is the aspect of ethical conduct. So the intention to engage in the practices and teachings also moves us into kind of an intention to behave in ways that don't contribute to the suffering of the world. So we start to act and be committed to non-harming, to peaceful conduct. So this is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the aspect of ethical conduct comprising wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So this aspect of the Eightfold Path is about harmonizing our relationship with the world, coming into peace, living peacefully, with a heart that is open and connected to other beings, this heart that inclines towards non-harming. The third aspect of the Eightfold Path the mental development component is comprised of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And we might ask, you know, why do we need mental cultivation? And this comes back to, if we reflect on what the Buddha said about dukkha, the understanding about this dukkha is that it is happening because of the way we relate to the world. We want things to be other than they are. We want things to stay that are 
uh, that are pleasant. We want to get rid of things that are unpleasant. We think that if we can only arrange the world in the way that it would suit me, that would be happiness. And so this kind of belief that you know, we could arrange the world to suit us doesn't come into alignment with reality very well. And so it proves itself to be a mistaken notion. There's a poem that kind of <laughs> illustrates this. This is an excerpt from Rilke's Eighth Elegy. And we, spectators, always everywhere, turn toward the world of objects. It fills us. We arrange it. It breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. This is our life. And it is this belief that we could rearrange that is the source, in a way, of this dukkha. And so it is something in our own minds. It is a a mental, mistaken notion. And so, the need for mental cultivation, which can begin to reorient our minds in a more, a way that is more in line with truth, So we look at our minds, we see how they work, what we've been doing here. This is really what we've been doing here. We have been practicing the, um, the sila aspect of the Eightfold Path through the practices of the precepts, the non-harming, and we are engaged with this aspect of the Eightfold Path, the cultivation of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. This is what we've been doing in our sittings, in our walkings. We observe our minds. We see the scattered, jumpy mind. We see the habits of mind that are propelling this jumpiness, this agitation. So the mental cultivation, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, begins to bring our minds into some settledness. It begins to allow us to see how these mental habits work. These three work together, as I you know, I hope you've been seeing over this week. And there's effort that we make, wise effort, which allows us to um, stay connected to our experience in the moment. The wise effort is the um, the in- is connected to the the motivation to cultivate skillful mind states and let go of unskillful mind states. The mindfulness is what allows us to recognize what's skillful and what's unskillful. It allows us to stay in the present moment, stay connected with our experience, seeing our experience moment after moment. And these two together, wise effort and wise mindfulness, allow the mind to settle down. To It is the bringing it together of the effort and the uh, mindfulness that leads to concentration, that leads to the stability of mind. And this concentration begins to 
show us how our minds work. So that was the briefest of overviews of the Eightfold Path. <laughs> I sometimes do that in eight weeks. <laughs> um, but kind of the next piece I want to talk about is freedom. So the Eightfold Path is a set of practices that are said to lead to freedom, to liberation. So what is this freedom? I've talked about it as freedom from suffering. The Buddhist understanding is that suffering results from unwholesome mental energies. And the Buddha boiled it down to three mental energies that are at the root of our suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion. He said all of our struggles are kind of come down to those three. The definition of freedom from suffering is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. So I'd like to read you some texts about liberation, about freedom. The Pali term is Nibbana, Sanskrit Nirvana, which is the one that's more in the English lexicon, Nirvana. This is really what we can can think of as enlightenment, awakening, freedom, liberation. They all kind of mean the same thing. So these texts that I'm going to read are um, they're from different sources in the Buddhist texts, but they kind of all flow together. So I'm just going to read them as one. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared, man aims at his own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and he experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, man aims neither at his own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both and he experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and not more remains for her to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, Even so, neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is her mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. I'm going to highlight a couple of pieces from this. One is in the place where it says, if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, man aims neither at his own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. 
that description is essentially equated to enlightenment, to freedom, experiencing no mental pain and grief. Just imagine, can, I mean, just even <coughs> explore in your mind what it might be like to live with no mental pain and grief. It's not saying that there won't be unpleasant physical experience. But if there is no mental reactivity to that unpleasant experience, it's a completely different thing. So this is, this is part of the, the promise, essentially, of the practice. This is possible, no mental pain and grief. The other thing that truly inspires me in this is he says, this is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life. This is something that is possible for us to cultivate in this life. The absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. I mean, when I think of something, when I think of the word enlightenment, you know, it kind of means like, I don't know what it means, but it's kind of like merging in the, in like oneness of all things. It's like, you know, it's not, not a place you would be living, you know, going to work in. But the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, I could envision going to work, perhaps, from that state. And that's, to me, what he's saying here, visible in this life. It's integrated into the world, this possibility for awakening. We don't have to remove ourselves. The Buddhist texts also give a number of similes for Nibbana. And um, in one place, they're kind of gathered together, all together, and it's... Kind of sounds like a poem, so I'm going to read them to you. Just read these similes. The unfashioned, the end, the effluentless, the true, the beyond, the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, permanence, the undecaying, the featureless, non-differentiation, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, Bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, security, nibbana, the unafflicted, the passionless, the pure, release, non-attachment, the island, shelter, harbor, refuge, the ultimate. So since the source, the root of our suffering, is understood to be greed, aversion, and delusion, we might ask how the Eightfold Path helps to bring them to their end. So to talk about this, I'm going to talk a little bit about greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) These are, as I said, these are the three root 
causes for essentially the Buddha talked about this, these as being the three root causes for all of the states of mind that lead us into suffering. They are the three things that are right at the very bottom of all of the reasons why we struggle. And there's a word that the uh, the text used for this, and the Pali word is kilesa. And it's usually translated as defilement. So these three are the root defilements of the mind. Now that's a kind of a funny word, <laughs> defilement. It doesn't sound very appealing, but then greed, aversion, and delusion are not very appealing. So there's a teaching around these defilements that um, there are kind of different layers to them, different ways they manifest in our experience. The most obvious or kind of grossest layer of these defilements, or we could call them impurities of mind or states of mind that lead to suffering, the most obvious form of these is when they uh, create such a strong state of mind that we begin to act out these difficulties. So we begin to, this is called the, the layer of transgression that we uh, actually act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, which means that we're, we, we may be breaking the precepts, we may be you know, engaging in harsh speech and you know, being unkind to people and basically engaging in harming, harming type of behaviors. So that's the, the most obvious layer of defilement. The next layer down is uh, it's called the... It's a little more subtle, and it's called the layer of kind of the manifestation of these defilements. And this is where they come up in our minds. This is where they they kind of come into consciousness, and we experience anger, frustration, aversion, annoyance, greed, uh, eagerness, excitement, anticipation. We experience all of these um, things that kind of keep us off-center, out of out of balance, off kilter. So these things come up into our minds, but we, we don't necessarily act on them. So this is the next level of defilement, is that when they're coming up into our minds, but we're not acting on them. This is actually a lot of where our practice is. You know, we sit in meditation and we notice what comes up into our minds. The most subtle kind of defilement is called latent tendency or underlying tendency. And this is where the, um, the, the movements towards greed, aversion, and delusion and all of the manifestations thereof are not coming up, are not present in the moment. So we're free of them in the moment. And yet the tendency towards them still exists in our mind. I'm sure you all have a kind of a sense of this. You know, we all have kind of patterns that are very deeply ingrained. Um, You know, things that we get hooked into over and over again. It might be a pattern of loneliness or a pattern of depression or a pattern of anger. Whatever it is, we all have kind of patterns that we're hooked to. And we, you know, we, we know there are times that we're not in that rut. And it's kind of like there are ruts in our mind. 
You know, we, we, there are times when we're not in those ruts, and we see, oh yeah, you know, I'm fine right now. You know, that depression, that's not here right now, or or that loneliness, it's not happening. But we know, we have a sense that if conditions were to change, then that pattern would reappear. You know, we have a sense that it's kind of there. You know, it's it's not active, but it's like there's, uh, you know, it's worn, that, that rut, there's that rut worn into our mind. And if conditions make it such that uh, a little ball gets close enough to the edge, it's just going to drop right into that rut and it's going to be hard to get out of again. So the, the pattern of that rut, we can kind of think of it almost as neurological patterns. That's the last kind of the way I think of it. You know, there are neurological patterns. And if that pattern is not being fired at the moment, it's not active. It's not active in the moment. It's not happening in the moment. But because the pattern is still there, it doesn't take much for the, you know, the causes and conditions to come together to activate that pattern in the moment. And then we're caught again. So that's the most subtle form of these defilements, is, not, is when they're not active, but there's still the tendency toward them. So the three sections of the Eightfold Path each address one of these layers. The uh, first, the most obvious layer, is met or uh, addressed or we have practices to work with it in the ethical component of the Eightfold Path. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. As we engage in those practices, we refrain from acting. They, 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 tend, they tend to counter our movement to act out on these defilements. So they, 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 they begin to counter that, those tendencies. To, to act out. So that grossest level of defilement is met by the uh, ethical component of the Eightfold Path. The um, mental cultivation aspect, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, this also does counter the tendency to act out on uh, our mental defilements on greed, aversion, and delusion as they rise in our mind. Because through the seeing, uh, with wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, as we see these things come up in our mind, we see the, the, the movement, we can actually begin to see the movement to act and, and recognize, oh, there's that intention to act, and I don't have to do that. I don't have to go there. So the practices of Mental cultivation also support our not acting out, not not in that, uh, that what they call the transgression level of the defilement. The aspects of mental cultivation also counter the um, arising of these qualities in our minds. They begin to provide tools to support their letting go. And there's two ways that this happens. There's the cultivation of concentration through which the mind gets more stable and uh, kind of through that stability of mindfulness and the concentration just being with 
experience moment after moment, it seems like there's not room for these defilements, not much room for greed, aversion, and delusion to come up. And what happens is that we move into a place in this concentration that it's called the bliss of seclusion. That, um, in fact, when the, when the concentration becomes quite strong, the hindrances I spoke about the other night don't have anywhere to have a foothold. And so we become free for periods of time when the concentration is strong. We, we are free from some of these kind of uh, strong defilements. So the concentration supports this, um, at least moments or times when we're free from those defilements. And it feels really good. You know, when we touch in or taste that kind of concentration, when the, the hindrances are at bay, it's like, oh yeah, it, it gives us a taste. It begins to give us a taste of what it's like to be free from those defilements. And the mind really likes it. It's very nice to not have those qualities coming up in your mind. You begin to get a taste of that freedom. And that is a temporary kind of freedom. The concentration is a constructed state and it um, falls apart. (laughs) And with it, um, we see that as the concentration falls apart, you know, all of these difficulties, these defilements will just come right back. So the, um, the mental cultivation helps us to kind of get a taste for what it's like to be free from these defilements. But that uh, the concentration alone is not powerful enough to really uproot the third level of the defilements. That uh, the level of the latent tendency, those patterns that are deeply wired into our, our minds. For the subtlest level of defilement, it takes a radical shift of understanding, a radical shift of perspective, that shift of perspective that the Buddha found the night of his awakening to eliminate this underlying tendency towards greed, aversion, and delusion. So such a fundamental reshaping of understanding comes through wisdom, And it's not an intellectual form of wisdom. It can't come through thought. It comes through a direct understanding. So I want to talk a little bit about that direct understanding and talk a little bit, too, about the the deepest kind of uh, root of the defilements, which is ignorance. So deep at the base of these tendencies, this latent tendency for greed, aversion, and delusion, is this quality of ignorance. Our usual understanding of what ignorance means is, um, you know, something like lack of knowledge. It's kind of a passive lack of knowledge. Just something we don't have. If we'd had it, then we'd have that, that, we wouldn't have that ignorance. 
But the ignorance that underlies these latent tendencies is actually a much more insidious kind of ignorance. It's, it's actually an active misunderstanding of the nature of reality. We have some fundamental misperceptions that we are living with all the time that impacts how we perceive things, how we view things, how we relate to things. The three primary misunderstandings are that we take what is impermanent to be permanent. We take what is unsatisfactory as a lasting source of happiness to be a lasting source of happiness. Or another way to put this, we take what is suffering to be happiness. And we take what is not self to be self. So taking what is impermanent to be permanent. I mean, we all think we know that things are impermanent. We, sort, we do know that at an intellectual level. And yet we don't behave that way. We don't act that way. At some level deep in our minds, we are functioning from the place that we believe that things are permanent. The grossest example of this is kind of the delusion that we have, many of us, I know some people who, who don't, didn't have or don't have this delusion, that essentially that we are immortal. There's a, a famous quote in uh, the Mahabharata, which is an Indian epic poem. And in one part of the poems, one of the uh, characters is asked, so what is the greatest wonder? And the character responds, that every day we see that beings die and yet believe ourselves to be immortal. That is the greatest wonder. And it is true. I mean, that this, this, this kind of delusion we have around our own mortality is kind of the grossest example of how we take what is impermanent to be permanent. And there's an even more you know, kind of deeper level of that because the, um, our experience, our moment-to-moment experience, actually... There's nothing in our experience that actually lasts for longer than a split second. Nothing. Nothing lasts. And this, um, this kind of touching into impermanence is not something that is really possible at the realm of our, 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 our ordinary perception, our ordinary daily life perception. It really takes a, a seeing through a mind that is really clearly concentrated and mindful can begin to see this truth of how impermanent things are. So the training of our mind, as we train with wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, we actually begin to touch into that truth much more experientially.
that we experience our lives as just being this ever-changing flow of experience with nothing lasting for very long. The second misperception, taking what is unsatisfactory to be happiness. This is very related to this truth or misunderstanding around impermanence as well. Because essentially the impermanence of things, the fact that things are so in flux, means that there's no way that we can uh, find happiness by holding on to them or, or constructing or creating something because it's just going to disintegrate. And so this misunderstanding around uh, permanence and impermanence you know, in the belief that think there is a kind of a permanent quality, maybe not forever permanent, but at some level, some kind of uh, permanence. You know, I can hold on to this relationship, or I can hold on to this, this house, or whatever. You know that we 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 impute a, a sense that we can hold on to things. But the truth of impermanence makes the the reality that there is nothing in our experience that could possibly be satisfying as a place to kind of hang our hat and say, this is what's going to make me happy. As we observe this in our experience, again, through wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, we, we see that the impermanence inherently means that there's nothing that's going to be satisfying to try to hold on to. And actually, we, we discover something even kind of more remarkable in that what we are trying to hold on to, that we see, we see in our exploration of this misperception around suffering and happiness, we see that the suffering is created in our minds by trying to hold on to something. So we start to see that it is in our minds that the suffering is created. What's even more amazing is that we see that what we're trying to hold on to is also created by our minds. What we're trying to hold on to is concept. There's nothing out there in the world that can actually be held on to because everything in experience is is in such a constant state of flux. Our concepts begin to kind of create this illusion of permanence. And if you actually look at your experience of what you're holding on to, you'll see that it is an idea. Now, this is maybe sounds strange or unbelievable. What I'd like to suggest is that you don't have to believe this, but explore in your own experience. What is it that you are holding on to? What are you actually holding on to? And this third one, taking what is not self to be self. This is um, 
you know, kind of a... Well, this one's really hard to, to understand in a way because it's so counter to what our experience is. I'll just try to, you know, try to shift your perspective a little bit on this. You know, that there is a process going on in each of us. There's a process here, an Andrea process, and there's processes that each of you have. And there's, there's a separation between those processes. It's not like, you know, I'm going to confuse me with this process here with that process there. So there is, you know, something happening. But we mistakenly impute a kind of solidity. Again, it's kind of back to that permanence kind of notion. We mistakenly impute a solidity to the process. There's no thing that is inherently carrying through the entirety of that process. It is just a process, kind of like a river. Just the flow of change. You know, you can't really say what the river is. You know, you can't take a bucket of water out of the river and say, that's the river. Now, the water in the river is continually changing. You can't even say that the riverbed is the river. You know, if there was the riverbed without the water, it wouldn't be the river. And the riverbed can change if there's like a flood or something. You know, the, 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 the ground of the riverbed can change. You know, so it's kind of like our lives are kind of like a river. There is a process And kind of after the fact, we impute a sense of, oh, that's me. So it's a a mistaken understanding, this idea that there is a solid me here. There are natural laws that govern this process, laws of cause and effect, if you kind of think about a tree, you know, how does a tree come into being? Well, it starts with the seed. And then, you know, there are natural uh, laws that kind of, that seed is planted and, you know, if it gets moisture and sun, then it'll eventually sprout. And if it's in a good situation, it's not going to get mowed over by a lawnmower or eaten by an animal. It's got a little longer time, perhaps, to grow into a, a tree, a, you know. There are natural laws that govern the movement of that seed from seed to tree. There's no being there doing that. It seems a little easier for us to see in terms of a tree. That it's just a process. A natural process governed by natural laws. And that's what we are. We are processes governed by natural laws. No particular being here. So as we explore our experience through wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, these truths begin to kind of penetrate. We begin to have kind of insights around these misperceptions. We begin to directly recognize the impermanence of experience. We begin to directly recognize the unsatisfactoriness of anything as being a reliable source of happiness. And we do begin to see this process nature of experience. So the wisdom 
moves from being a kind of an intellectual understanding to an experiential, actual recognition, what we could call an insight. So you might see, uh, you know, a pattern in your mind of an emotional pattern, anger, for instance, and you know it's up in a moment and. There's a way in which we kind of impute permanence to that when it's happening. You know, oh yeah, I'm the angry person. We identify with it. It becomes me. It becomes who I am. But when we're watching this pattern with mindfulness, with concentration, with the, with those three aspects of the Eightfold Path, when we're watching that, we might at some point actually see that pattern just suddenly vanish. And then we'll see, oh, you know, it's kind of startling when we have an insight like that. You know, when something vanishes in our experience, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, where did that go? I thought it was such a real thing. And so the, the actual experience, we, we have these actual moments of recognition, of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of not-self. And these moments begin to wear away at the misperceptions. Because for a moment, we clearly see from a different perspective. We clearly see that there isn't anything that we can hold on to. For a moment. This path is a gradual one. I used to, you know, when I first got into this practice, I used to think there was going to be some mind-blowing insight and then ever after I was going to be happy. It's much more gradual than that. There are little moments of seeing, of clearly, oh, impermanence. Oh, that's dukkha. Or the recognition of just the process nature of experience. No one here. Just little tiny moments of that. And they have conditions that create the container for those insights to arise in. Insights themselves are impermanent. They are there for a moment and you know when it's there it's like wow this is so obvious how can I not see this? And then moments later huh? I, there's this kind of, how could, did I really see that? There almost can be a disbelief in what we saw because it seemed so clear and so obvious and then yet suddenly it's not clear anymore. So that space of insight is impermanent in that one, when we have those little moments of insight, it's not like we live there forever after. So we have a recognition into impermanence. And it's not like we live in that space of, of living that truth forever after. But there has been a kind of a shift in our minds. That the, a shift in that perspective, a shift in understanding that informs us. So that, you know, that we will get caught again in these very same misperceptions. Over and over again we'll get caught in these same misperceptions. And yet having had those 
insights, there's kind of a way of, or there's, a, there's an understanding that has shifted underneath. But even if we're not experiencing it, there's a knowledge. Oh yeah, I'm caught by this belief that things are permanent. Or I'm caught by this belief that there can be satisfaction in life. And so the, the misperceptions have been revealed to us. And so they don't quite have the same power to, uh, to fool us quite so much anymore. And so we can uh, have a little bit of more ability to just hang out with the struggle. You know, just, okay, I know this is, this is dukkha, I feel this dukkha. And I understand that there's a misperception operating here, which the mind isn't quite able to really deeply see at this moment. So I'm just going to hang out here and see what I can learn. How is the mind holding on here? So these, these small insights begin to shift our perspective, begin to offer us the um, taste of freedom. Because in those moments of insight, there is a freedom. You know, when there's that recognition of, a, a true recognition of the process nature of experience. You know, what a relief that there's no me here. No self, no problem. So we begin to get a taste of this, what it means to live with no mental pain or grief. For small moments we get that taste. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.